Amen. We'll turn with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 4 this evening. 2 Corinthians chapter 4. And while you're turning there, uh, Wade and E.L., I think I need your signature on Joy's baptismal certificate. So right after we're done, we'll do that in my office, get that done with. And then bring greetings to the congregation from Dale, our former intern. He had us over uh, for lunch today, hosted us with another couple from Reedville, and he did a great job. So he's, he's doing well at the church, doing well personally, and, and continue just to be really thankful for him and all God's doing in his life. So 2 Corinthians chapter 4, uh, we'll read verses 1 through 12 tonight, probably finish chapter 4 next week. I'm not going to lie, I'm disappointed we won't finish 2 Corinthians. That's a bummer. I will be gone uh, before we finish. Maybe my last Sunday night we'll just do the remaining seven chapters. How's that sound? No, that, 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 well, thank you, Mary. You're such an encouragement. So. Exactly, exactly. So uh, that would probably be tough to pull off, but it's a great book, so keep studying it. And we'll at least look tonight at 2 Corinthians 4. So here now God's word is beginning at verse 1. Therefore, since through God's mercy we have this ministry, we do not lose heart. Rather, we have renounced secret and shameful ways. We do not use deception, nor do we distort the word of God. On the contrary, by setting forth the truth plainly, we commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. The God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers so that they cannot see the light of the gospel that displays the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For what we preach is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ is Lord, and ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, made his light shine in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of God's glory displayed in the face of Christ. But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that this all-surpassing power is from God and not from us. We are hard-pressed on every side, but not crushed, perplexed, but not in despair, persecuted, but not abandoned, struck down, but not destroyed. We always carry around in our body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be revealed in our body. For we who are alive are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake so that his life may also be revealed in our mortal body. So then, death is at work in us, but life is at work in you. Amen. We'll end our reading there and let's pray together. Father in heaven, we do thank you again. For the Word of God, the Spirit of God who speaks through the Word, revealing Jesus Christ. So help us tonight to contemplate the Lord's glory with unveiled faces and be transformed into His image, which is the image of God. That is how, Lord, that's how we're to function in your creation. And we pray that we would do it well for your glory. We thank you for Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. Well, our last message in 2 Corinthians worked through Paul's dense contrast between the old covenant ministry associated with Moses and the new covenant ministry of the Spirit that Paul administers in the gospel. Now, it was dense, and I will not rehearse for you all the details from that message. I will simply remind you with this one sentence that Paul argues that both covenants were glory. But the glory of the new covenant surpasses that 
of the old. I said one sentence. That was a mistake, but only like two more. The old covenant was glorious, but its glory was interrupted by Moses' veil in the presence of condemnation and death. But in contrast, the new covenant brings life, and it brings unlimited access to God's presence and glory. And that's the kind of ministry that Paul is all about. And so the Corinthians should continue to follow his leadership. And you can see then, I hope from that summary, how Paul's large theological discussion and idea serves the practical question of what constitutes an authentic ministry. What are the dynamics that mark a ministry as authentic? That's the question Paul's been answering since chapter 2, verse 14. A relevant question for the life of the church, one that is undergoing the search for a new pastor. Well, Paul gives us the beginning of the end of his answer tonight, or he gives us the final part of the answer in the first few verses of tonight's passage. He, He wants to reinforce to the Corinthians that in light of how the Spirit works through the gospel, his actions to them have been appropriate. And so let's listen one more time as Paul brings to an apex his presentation of authentic new covenant ministry. And he'll say two things about it. One, authentic new covenant ministry has integrity. Paul refers back to the previous section, the dense one at the end of chapter 3, in the opening sentence here. He says, since through God's mercy we have this ministry. And the ministry in view is the one he just described, the glorious new covenant ministry that produces life in people and enables them to be transformed into God's image and experience his glory. When you preach the gospel, when you celebrate the good news of what Jesus has done, and call people to trust in that and to imbibe that life, those are the effects. Paul received a ministry like that, not because he was adequate, but through God's mercy. And because that's the mercy that, or the ministry that God has given Paul, he therefore says, he and his associates, do not lose heart. And when you've got a ministry like that, you have something to encourage you. Something to keep you going in the face of difficulties. And again, that's a very relevant situation, is it not? Paul's had difficulties with the Corinthians. What will keep him going? He knows he has a message that's powerful and transformative. And he knows his whole goal is their good. And so when he hits bumps in the road, he can keep going. Because he knows he's got the weapon and the tools to get the job done. And in fact, rather than giving up, Paul uses, as I just said, the proper tools for the job. You know, jobs can be hard when you don't have the right tools. When all you have is a hammer, pretty soon everything starts looking like a nail. But that's not a good way to remodel your house. Paul has the right tools. And he describes them in verse 2. He says, rather, we have renounced secret and shameful ways. We do not use deception, nor do we distort the word of God. On the contrary. By setting forth the truth plainly, we commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. So here's Paul saying, look, here's the tools I use. Here's the tools I don't use. I do not employ secret and shameful ways or deception or distortion of the word of God. And and the big idea behind all those terms is just Paul is saying, look, 
I don't hide my motives. I don't hide my message from the Corinthians. I'm open with you. You know what I'm all about. I tell you the truth, and I tell you why I tell you the truth. So he's very open with them, even when that meant painful confrontation. It was for their good. Now, in, in reciting that, I think it's always appropriate to give the warning. So some people hear that and they're, they're very emboldened. They, they like Paul. They want to be more confrontational. Maybe that's God has wired you and given you that gift so that you can do that. Just if you're going to be emboldened, the balance is always make sure that you're right in your confrontation and that it is for the person's good. So before you go confronting, make sure, okay, is this really what God says? And do I truly have their best interest in mind? Check yourself first. But if that's the case, if before God you're convinced that's the case, Christians do want to see people flourish. We, we, we want to see people live, not die. We want to see them living well in God's creation, and that may at times mean intervening to keep people from spiritually harming themselves. And Paul says, I've done that faithfully. You know it. So I don't use tools that hide that. Instead, here's the tools he does use. By setting forth the truth plainly, we commend ourselves to everyone's conscience. Public proclamation of the truth. That is the tool that the Spirit uses to help people grow spiritually. And that is what Paul has done with the Corinthians. In fact, he's been so conscious of the fact that he's doing this in the sight of God. That is the one to whom he will give Accounts. I mean, you get a minister like that, when you get a ministry that's kind of characterized by that kind of openness, transparency, truthfulness, but gentleness, that's a ministry worthy of being heard. However, Paul names a problem. Despite his proper ministry conduct, not everyone receives it. Verse 3 reads, And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. All right, so here's that veiling language again. Remember, Moses put a veil over his face, and it interrupted the Israelites' experience of God's glory. Well, even in the new covenant age, there are still those who don't see God's glory. So Paul may set it forth openly, but they still don't see it. Why not? Verse 4 gives us the answer. The God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers so that they cannot see the light of the gospel that displays the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. So Satan himself works to keep people from seeing the truth, lest they believe it and escape his snare. At least that's one of the reasons that Paul gives in this passage. You know, other places we might look at poor communication, or we might look at what Jesus says. He talks about those who are stumbling blocks, so that's all part of the equation too. But one piece of the the equation is there's a spiritual warfare, and that Satan would seek to keep people from seeing the truth. And I want you to notice all the language Paul uses there in verse 4 that reaches back to the previous section. So Satan blinding the minds of unbelievers, that's like Moses veiling his face. It keeps people from seeing God's glory. But whereas Moses interrupted the experience of God's glory then, here we read Satan prevents unbelievers from seeing God's glory. 
And furthermore, the glory that unbelievers fail to see is the image of God. So again, what did we read at the end of chapter 3? We can gaze on the Lord's glory with an unveiled face and be transformed into his image. We can be restored to our original creational vocation and anticipate the new creation to come. But when there's a veil, then we are not able to see that image. Unbelievers are not able to persevere towards that goal. And that's one of the reasons Paul's ministry at times hits blocks. But when you read language like that, okay, we got Satan working and unbelievers have an inability there. Well, that might be a downer. You know, is the work of the ministry hopeless? No. Paul quickly tells us the solution to the problem in verses 5 through 6. He talks again about the tools for the trade. Verse 5, for what we preach is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord and ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. This is similar to what Paul said a moment ago about having an open ministry. He and his associates openly preach Jesus Christ. That is the solution for people's spiritual needs. And they can those who bring that message then conduct themselves as people's servants for Jesus' sake. And to take that position, by the way, you're coming into town and the message isn't about me. It's not about my status. It's not about I'm the only one that's got this information. You better pay me well for it. No, to come in instead and act as a servant, offering things freely, that would have been quite countercultural in Paul's day. But he says, this is the tool I use. So because there's spiritual blindness, I come using this tool of open proclamation. And what then is the result? Verse 6, for God who said, let let light shine out of darkness made his light shine in our hearts to give us the knowledge of the light of the knowledge of God's glory displayed in the face of Christ. So yes, Satan may veil hearts, that's a problem. But the proclamation of the gospel in the new covenant with the power of the spirit can break through the veil. There's no veil that can withstand the light of God's glory when he chooses to shine. And that is why Paul continues This kind of ministry. And there's two allusions, by the way, in verse 6 worth pointing out. Two two, uh, places where the Old Testament imagery is is coming through. One is rather obvious. The reference to light shining out of darkness sounds like creation language, does it not? The God who said, let there be light in the natural creation, can likewise say, let there be light in a darkened heart and make people into new creations. And secondly, Isaiah 9, you know, when God promised to save his people through the wonderful counselor and the mighty God, that great Christmas passage we read all the time, what would be the result? The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of deep darkness, a light has dawned. Bringing light to dark souls is what Jesus and the Spirit are all about. That is what they are doing. In the ministry of the new covenant, when the gospel is preached, the good news is proclaimed, that's the power of God working with that message. So what can we take away from this first section? Well, one, two things. One, a healthy ministry is one in which there is openness. 
When we are following Christ properly, we have nothing to hide. We have nothing to be ashamed of. So good leaders are those who are upfront about their message and their motives. Hey, this is what we're trying to do. This is why it's good for you. This is how it ties into the gospel. This is where we're going. And a good leader will just be upfront with that for spiritual good. And two, another takeaway is the work of the Spirit results in freedom and joy. So when God, the Spirit, works, it produces freedom and joy. The Spirit sets us free from Satan. He sets us free from all the false gods. You don't have to live a life enslaved to anything sinful. But, but you can be, you ought to be, you should be, and you'll find joy in pursuing the Spirit's transformation. The more you become like your God, the, the more you live properly in his creation, the more you relate well to others. I suppose we could mention a third. You know, if this is the power that's on that is available to us, and then pray for that to happen in the life of the assembly and for your own life as well. So authentic New Covenant ministry has integrity. And secondly, authentic New Covenant ministry gives value to suffering. Now I'll give you that title, gives value to suffering, and as we go through the passage, you'll see why I've chosen that language. You see, despite all the power contained In the New Covenant ministry, God has decided to send it into the world through fragile means. Paul writes in verse 7, But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that this all-surpassing power is from God and not from us. So when Paul refers to the treasure, he's talking about, again, the glory or, or this light of God, this power of the Spirit that operates in the new covenant. When you have a treasured possession, you might store it in a beautiful box or a safe box. Instead, we read, God entrusts it to fragile jars of clay. Now, by the way, the point of this language isn't to produce shame as if the point of the image was that we are dirty vessels. That's not where Paul is going with this. Rather, Paul often in these letters speaks of our bodies as vessels and tents that are fallible. They're frail. They're waiting for the resurrection body. Think 1 Corinthians 15. Or if you know 2 Corinthians 5, where we want to put off the tent and be clothed with our immortal body. Paul's point is to say, God has not entrusted his ministry to vessels like that. God hasn't given the ministry to those who are already glorified. He's given it to those who still inhabit this age who are attended by weakness. So as the ministry goes forward, it will always be attended by weakness. There will always be the call to walk and to live by faith and not by sight. One commentator describes clay jars as, quote, unexceptional, excuse me, unexceptional, affordable, disposable, and put to a wide variety of uses in the ancient world. As mass-produced throwaway containers for the general population, they were both fragile and expendable. And again, the point there isn't to say, you know, you're just a little value, you're just so disposable in God's eyes. No, the point is there to say, in the eyes of the powerful. You know, Christians and Christian ministry, they're fragile. It just seems very ordinary. Where's the impressive stuff? And Paul is saying, God does things this way so that his power will be on full display. If the messenger, if the case is is not impressive, then the power of God is. That puts all the focus on the treasure. 
and not on the treasure box. And that is consistent with Paul's emphasis that his ministry is not about self-promotion. It's not about looking good. It's about giving the people the gospel and giving them truth for their well-being. So when the vessel isn't the focus, the contents can truly help people. And Paul then expands on this idea by detailing some of the hardships he has faced. And this is where we get to the idea that authentic ministry gives value to suffering. Verses 8 through 9 read, We are hard-pressed on every side, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not in despair. Persecuted, but not abandoned. Struck down, but not destroyed. You can hear in there the double emphasis on fragility. We're hard-pressed, crushed persecuted, struck down, but on the other hand, on the power of the Spirit of God who works through such people in such circumstances. We are not crushed, not in despair, not abandoned, and not destroyed. That's the power of the treasure. And so as Paul reaches his conclusion, he explains that authentic ministers continue on a path plagued by weakness so that those to whom they minister can experience life. Verse 10 reads, We always carry around in our bodies the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may also be revealed in our body. Paul, in his life, he's following a pattern, as one commentator writes, a pattern of suffering modeled by his Lord. And by doing so, the gospel, that is, the life of Jesus, or the life that Jesus gives, advances through the world. And verse 11 then basically restates the same idea. For we who are alive are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that his life may also be revealed in our mortal body. Now, obviously, Paul and his team aren't physically dead, but they do face death often for the sake of ministry. It's what Paul says, I think, in 1 Corinthians 15. It's sometimes translated, I die daily. He probably means there, I face death daily. Just, just daily, there is this threat of death upon me. And he says, but for the sake of your life, I continue it. And so he concludes in verse 12. So then death is at work in us, but life is at work in you. Paul's ministry, with all its attendant weakness and suffering, is the means by which the Corinthians have experienced life. And Paul's sufferings neither weaken nor invalidate the authenticity of his new covenant ministry. And that's why I therefore titled this, that authentic ministry gives value to suffering. Why would Paul continue on this path? He must realize that this path, in the end, produces good for people produces life for people, has a goal that makes a rocky path worth pursuing. When he opened 2 Corinthians, he talked about facing death, a a distress that was so intense we despaired of life itself. He he never tells us exactly what it is, so it could have been some kind of riot that he faced. You know, think of the riot in Ephesus where the whole town was in an uproar, didn't know how that was going to resolve. could be one of his imprisonments where he doesn't know if he's going to live or die. Paul goes through these sufferings because he recognizes that the end result of his ministry is life for people. Being set free from the powers that keep them in bondage now, having a good life now, spiritually flourishing that is, and having a hope for a future. And working through the hard things he works through is worth it when he knows that's the end result. 
And it may be that, by the way, in your life you don't suffer like that. It always feels a little odd to talk about you know, persecution and suffering when that's not our experience. But John Calvin spoke to this. He says God in his providence doesn't decree that for everybody. If he doesn't decree it for you, give thanks. Enjoy what he gives you. But be faithful with what he has given you. And so I think then we can broaden what Paul is saying here to say, all right, looking at our life situation or our ministry situation, to remember that there is virtue in weakness, that there is a virtue in vulnerability in the Christian life, that the Christian life is not one in which we have it all together because the ministry goes forward powerfully by means of God's spirit. And so in your life, when there's times of stumbling or suffering or weakness or vulnerability, that is when God works powerfully to show that the virtue and the goodness is all of God and not of us. So seek that power in your life. Seek that power in your service to others and and seek that life of the Spirit here in the ministry of our church. Let's pray and give thanks and pray to that end. Father in heaven, we do... Thank you for the wisdom of your word, that your way of governing the church is to do it through the power of your spirit and to use frail, fragile vessels. Father, I pray for each person here tonight that they would know that in their own life. So in whatever vocation you've given them, whatever calling, whatever situation in life, may they know the sufficiency of your power day by day. And whatever duties they have to perform, may they know the sufficiency of your power and your power at work to give them grace in life, even when they are weak, fragile, and frail. And when we're simple as well, forgive us. Help us, Lord, to strive for holiness, never to use sin as any kind of excuse, but when we're fragile and frail, to know your power. And then I pray that for the life of this church, that they would know, we would know, the work of the Spirit among us to do good things, to give life to people, flourishing to the community here, and then it might even spill over uh, to where we live and work and play. So we pray for that, equip us for that, and thank you for your mercies. Thank you for the gift of the Spirit purchased through the death and resurrection of our Savior, in whose name we pray, amen. Let's sing in closing. Hymn 479, Softly and Tenderly, Jesus is Calling. We'll sing the first and the last verse. So hymn 479, stand with me please. First and the fourth.